This week on Hacker in the Fed, what might authentication attacks look like in a phishing-resistant future? The SEC now requires companies to disclose cyber attacks. There are many more U.S. government domains in the dot-com world than you might think, and many other news stories from this week in cybersecurity news. Hector Monsegur was responsible for some of the most notorious hacks Former ever. FBI Special Agent Chris Tarbell. Hackett and FBI informants participated in some of the world's most infamous hacks. It caused up to $50 million in damages. A life in the shadows. Cyber attacks on the rise. Welcome to Hacker in the Fed. I'm Chris Tarbell, former FBI special agent, working my entire career in cybersecurity, and now founding partner at Nexo. I'm joined as always by Hector Monsiger. Hector is a friend and podcast co-host. He's also a former black hat hacker who once faced 125 years in prison for his many years of hacking under the code name Sabu. Our stories collided in June of 2011 when I arrested Hector and convinced him to work with me at the FBI. Hector is now a red teamer, researcher, and cybersecurity expert. Hector, how are you doing this week? Doing very well. A little exhausted, but I'm okay. How about yourself? Oh, yeah, I'm a little tired, too. We both have a couple of events this week. Where are you? What city are you going to this week? Yeah, I'm going to Philly this week. It's going to be fun. What day is your event? It's uh, Tuesday. Yeah. Okay, so you'll be back home by, by the time this comes out. Oh, yeah, so. absolutely. So I am going to Austin, Texas. I'm going to the Sands... DFIR conference. Uh, I think I'm speaking, I think it's Thursday. I got to look at the schedule. Heading off to Texas. You're heading off to Philly. And we will meet back up again next week and do another episode. So not. I, sh- I guess we shouldn't get fast forward through this episode until uh, until we finish this one. But this one's a fat one. We got, we got 12 stories tonight. I don't think we're going to get to all 12, but you never know. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It gives us an opportunity to geek out a little bit and kind of talk about some things that are interesting. But, you know, what I'm really looking forward to is just sharing this moment with you, bro. Just spending this time with you, and hopefully uh, we have a great conversation here. It's weird. Like I said, we have 12 stories. Not one of them about ransomware, but ransomware is hot in the news this week. It really is. I mean, you know, before you and I started recording, we were having a conversation about how these ransomware operators, they've made enough money that they're probably dedicating resources to either buying zero-day exploits from researchers um, or they're, they're, they've been able to put together a, a research development team or research development arm where they're identifying what management software organizations are using and then finding zero days in those. So it's, it's definitely an interesting time, and I'm pretty sure at this point everybody's been hacked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're multi-million dollar companies, these, these ransomware groups now. Essentially. I mean, they have... R&D, they have, I'm sure they have HR people trying to hire new people. Mm-hmm. Like, it's crazy that, uh, you know, a group like this, you know, I, I was blown away about how Lulsec operated and how, you know, it was a, you On know, a an organization. That, yeah. yeah, that was nothing compared to what they're doing now with these ransomware guys. You know, if you were to take the resources these guys have now and give that, give, bring it back in time, right? And give it to us. I can, I can only speak for myself. You give me that 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 budget, man. I'm going to tell you something. Half the internet would have been compromised. Uh, You'd be DDoSing some sons of bitches. Nah, man. I would. I, I would be. In, <laughs> I know. I'm be, teasing you. Yeah. <laughs> I would be everywhere. This, yeah. this comes across as sort of a put down for back in that those days. If you're spending all your money on just 
bots to uh, DDoS people. It's yeah. uh, sort of a, a noob move. <laughs> and even then, you know, that's a good point. I mean, we, we, I think we mentioned it last week that DDoS is still a thing. You know, I would think that by yeah. now it would start to like kind of fade away. But no, it's, it's definitely uh, an ongoing business. People are still spending a lot of money on DDoS capabilities and they're actually using it for ransom, which is insane. Yeah, low-hanging fruit, you know. The first story is, what might authentication attacks look like in a phishing-resistant future? Ooh. Oh, Hector, a phishing-resistant future. Ooh. Isn't that nice? That sounds very nice. So the author goes through and talks about how uh, passwords sort of are, are disappearing in the not near future, mm -hmm. distant future, hopes that, you know, we're not using passwords. Um, you know, password-based authentication is, is the weakest type of authentication we have right now. Um, you know, it's vulnerable to, you know, we've talked about this week after week, you know, brute force, which is just, you know, trying every different combination of password available. Um, passwords are, are susceptible to phishing attacks. Um, sending links to people that hope they click on it and enter their username and password um, and steal them that way. And there's also, you know, password stuffing, which is going to a website and, and trying a variety of different, you know, passwords that are out there, commonly used passwords and that sort of thing, if there's not a limit to it. Then we're talking about MFA, which is uh, multi-factor authentication. Um, and we're sort of, you know, those are also, you know, a little susceptible to, you know, password guessing, um, and also, you know, third party, uh, website password stuffing, you know, and also phishing attacks, you know, people could get in there and steal that session, uh, and get you to enter your MFA. So the author goes in and talks about, you know, FIDO2, you know, if we've talked about this before, explain to the audience what a FIDO2 is. Yeah. Well, I mean, FIDO, FIDO itself is, is, um, you know, the, uh, uh, it's a protocol, right? And so, in fact, there are multiple protocols involved in uh, FIDO2 implementations. You have like WebAuthN and you have other tools that they've kind of developed for um, introducing folks or kind of bringing folks away from passwords, uh, like passkeys, right, which uh, most of you should be seeing now on your phones. Uh, both iPhone and Android has been uh, or have been introducing passkeys more often. And so, yeah, so basically it's a set of protocols that, uh, you know, would, would kind of help mitigate, uh, you know, the common authentication issues. It's kind of like a physical key you would stick in your device and it, it kind of sets up the, the connection between a, a website and authenticates you to a website? Yeah. Well, think about it like this, right? So, you know, you have a, a physical device, which is a key. I have, I have Yubico, your Yubico keys, which are really awesome. Uh, Google also has some, some, some other products out there. Um, and so what ends up happening is that you kind of create, um, you know, a, a profile of that key for your identity. And when it's time for you to authenticate somewhere, you know, you would press the key and then it would it would let the browser know, OK, so this person has physically authenticated. You know, when you look at passwordless or and this kind of leads us to passwordless and pass keys, um, this is a, it's basically a form of authentication. It doesn't require a user to manually enter a password. OK, um, so when you have like a, dev a device bound passkey, um, you know, or, or maybe you're using a biometric identifier, like a fingerprint, um, it allows you to kind of just move away from passwords altogether. Right. These are really cool technologies that have been developed over time. We've technically had these for quite some time, but now we're seeing, uh, a, I would say, mass implementation, which is really badass. 
and these device bound pass keys, they're they're better than you know authenticating through passwords and even passwords with MFA because they're they're phishing resistant. Um, they're resistant to credential stuffing. Um, the private keys are protected by hardware, um, and it's really much much more user friendly. Like you said, you can use your fingerprint to authenticate to the device. And now there is some work in setting up the device when you first get it. You know, there is some work going through. It's almost like going like going through and changing every password to every website you have. Um, so there is some work there. But but once you have that going and, and everything's locked up, you know, I, I do think it's a lot easier than entering a username, a password, and a uh, and a MFA key. Yeah, you know, we have to make a differentiator, right? Because I don't want the audience to get confused there. So when you you know, kind of when, when you're when you talk about like a device bounds. Um, means of authentication, right? Which is more around, around passwordless or passkeys. It's it's basically your way of authentic. You could use that as a means to authenticate onto a service. Um, when we're looking at uh, like a physical key that can be used for multi-factor authentication, that's definitely a different aspect of the authentication flow. Theoretically, you could probably have both enabled, right? You could have a situation where you use your phone to log into an app. Um, and now if you make, need to make changes to your account settings or it requires a, a secondary form of authentication, you still may require to press, uh, maybe required to press, like that's a physical security key. Um, I mean, they're really great technologies. And I want to give a big shout out to the FIDO Alliance um, for, for really, you know, putting together the protocols, the concepts, the companies that have, um, uh, you know, really adapted the technology. And of course, the big companies now that are including it into software. Now, there's one thing that, that Chris has said right here, audience here, that is important, that, yes, you may buy the security keys. And some of them are expensive, some of them are cheap. You can find them um, in different places. Make sure you read reviews before you make a decision. Once you get the keys, then you have to log into those accounts. Um, let's, go, let's start with Google, your Gmail account. You would have to go into your Gmail security settings, and then you would have to then configure um, your security keys as your MFA mechanism, right, rather than SMS or email. Okay, and then if you want to use like enhanced password protection from Google, um, or you would use, uh, um, or you would you know enable their their passwordless settings or passkey settings, then um, again very similar. You have to enable it, and then you have to authenticate on a device that you trust, like your phone, um, to be able to to kind of get that going. All right. Now all of this sounds fun. It sounds great. It sounds fun to me at least, Chris. These are things that that I, I've been talking about for a long time. We need to get rid of passwords. But this article from Talos Intelligence, they brought up some very good points. That even with, you know, you can have pass keys on your phone. And you may even have a, a physical Yubico key or a physical security key. There still may be areas of concern in regards to your personal security, right? Well, I mean, if I if I read it right, it's the the session. So yes, it's two different ways that we've gotten into we've gotten into this device. We've either gotten in using our username, password, and possible MFA, mm -hmm. or we've got in with this new key system. So the key system, much much better, much better approach. We're not dependent on a lot of things because of things you said. But now the session has started. We are in our Gmail account. We are in some our protected account. So now. It, it, what this article is going to talk about, and I, hopefully you can expand upon, is that now the session is vulnerable. And that's sort of where cybercrime is going to move into, is now instead of going after people's username and passwords, they're going after the session and trying to act like you while you're in the session. Yeah. I mean, look, that's how current MFA phishing works. 
Um, there are tools like Evil Nginx or Modlishka. Um, you can find them on GitHub if you want to do some testing when you're against yourself. But essentially, they act as man-in-the-middle proxies. And so if you set up a phishing campaign with one of those platforms and you fish yourself, you open the link, you're going to notice that, yes, the URL might be different, okay? But when you're opening it from a, your trusted browser that has, like, auto-save settings enabled and all that, you may notice that um, that the website you're looking at looks very similar or may even be, um, you know, the site that you think you're logging into. Now, the difference is that the attacker is just kind of sitting there in the middle, right, the whole adversary in the middle concept. They're waiting for you to authenticate. Then they'll wait for you to send in your MFA code or press in your um, your token, your security key, whatever. Now, once that occurs, okay, um, the attacker will be able to then inherit or kind of see on the fly, uh, on the flyby, your session token. Now, at that point, um, the attacker doesn't need your password, and they don't need you to enable, or rather, they don't need to double fish you for your MFA token. Um, all they need at that point is your session. They'll add the session to their browser and refresh the website, and boom, they're logged in as you. Okay. So even if I'm using my FIDO two keys and all mm -hmm. that, and I have my session going, they can still get past me, get to me that way, Hector, stealing my session. Yeah, absolutely. If you're authenticated and the attacker is able to get access to your session token or cookies, at that point, it could impersonate you. Right. No matter how you got in. So we, we have this old way of doing things. Mm -hmm. we're, we're prescribing this new way of things. Yeah. This new cybersecurity threat that we that the article is talking about is coming in this way yeah. is no matter how you got in, your session is now so vulnerable. And that's where cyber criminals are going to move towards. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's yeah. always been a thing. Right. This is why for a long time, a lot of researchers put a lot of effort into cross-site scripting. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah, so cross-site scripting for the audience here that, that really don't know what that is, um, also commonly referred to as the abbreviation XSS, um, would allow an attacker, an adversary, to execute JavaScript on your code through um, through a web application. All right, so let's say someone found an XSS vulnerability in Facebook.com. They sent you a link. You click on the link. Um, at that point, once you click the link and Facebook is open, um, JavaScript will run within your session. Um, from your browser. And usually the attack there is, well, if we could run JavaScript as the user on their browser while logged into Facebook, we could th theoretically just redirect their cookie to our external server uh, or exfiltration of that token or the session cookie. Um, so an attacker at that point would then do the same thing I just described a few moments ago. They'll add the cookie to their browser, refresh Facebook, and voila, they're in as you. Okay, so this is nothing new. Um, it's definitely something to be concerned about as we move forward, um, and I would even I, I would even wager to say that part of the article, um, whether they implied it or not, is probably introducing the uh, uh, the audience to the conversation about endpoint security, right, or host-based security, because otherwise, think about it like this, okay? Let's say you're fished. Let's say that uh, you know all. Let's say all the technical controls against a website has been implemented, right? HSTS. And um, CSP, uh, HSCS is, uh, it stands for HTTP Strict Transport Security. And it's very simple, very simple and widely supported standard. Uh, it essentially protects users uh, or forces browsers uh, to use HTTPS rather than plain text HTTP protocol. And so, okay, cool. All those technical controls are in place. You get fished. 
Um, the attacker is able to get access to your token or to session cookie. Depending on other controls, the attack may not be successful. Other controls could be something like uh, maybe IP uh, filtering, or it could be something else like browser fingerprinting, right? We're, we're not really sure. It is all theoretical right now. But if an attacker is sitting on your host, then it doesn't really matter at that point. Okay? Yeah. Scary stuff. So, I mean, uh, we're not, this article isn't meant to scare people to not use, it's not worth doing the, the, the Fido. Um, but, you know, just to realize that, you know, this may be the, the path of the, the cyber attacks in the future. And, you know, it, you know so the next thing we're going to have to tighten down. I mean, I, I'm happy that, that passwordless authentication is, is undeniably the future. But, you know, of course, as it gains traction, it's going to make researchers and bad guys think about outside-the-box scenarios, okay? And so I, you know, I very, very much appreciated this, this, uh, this article these guys put together, very good article, because it, it makes you think, what else or how else can an attacker target me once I've implemented the proper control? So uh, good food for thought um, content. Yeah, I mean, it was. It's interesting talking about you know the end of the article about the, the like the Telegram bots that now you're you're able the bad guys are selling sessions, uh, live sessions that are open that you can log into, um, you know. So so you know people have to get in there quick while they're they're still going. It's interesting. So Hector, there's a follow up story that we did a, a while back, but now it's become official. Uh, the SEC, the United States Security Exchange Commission, now requires companies to disclose cyber attacks in four days. Big change here, yeah. So they, they've adopted new rules that require publicly traded companies to disclose cyber attacks within four business days after determining that they're material incidents. Now, I think that's sort of the, uh, the catch-all there, is that uh, once they have to determine it's a material incident, so uh, hopefully that's pretty well-defined. In the documents that I've saw, they put it out as um, a material instance are those that a public company shareholders would consider important in making an investment decision. So the new regulation also goes to is mandated for foreign private uh, issuers and a, and a foreign uh, foreign private issuer is a non-governmental company that is incorporated outside of the U.S. and does business in the U.S. Uh, they also have to disclose breaches. It was interesting to see what their saying is out there you need to put out there the required information uh the date and discover of discovery of the status of the incident uh whether it's ongoing or resolved uh a description of the incident's nature and to the extent of what it was taken uh any data that may have been compromised altered access or used without authorization the impact of the incident on the company's operations information about ongoing or completed uh, uh efforts to remediate or, and the affected uh, companies are not expected to disclose technical specifics of the incident response plan or details about potential vulnerabilities that might influence their responses or remediation actions. So interesting, um, interesting stuff. I think it's going to put a lot of strain on companies. But on the flip side, I think we're going to get a lot more information out there, which is useful for guys that hopes a cybersecurity podcast. <laughs> yeah, because some of these stories are just very vague. Hey, there was a data breach. Okay, well, uh, cool. Yeah, th there's a data breach two months ago. Uh, we're just telling you about it now. So if you're a publicly traded company, you have four days to disclose, right? That's kind of where we're at. And it seems like the rules are going into effect very soon, 30 days following publication in the Federal Register. Now, smaller companies are granted an additional 180-day grace period, 
before they must be, be begin providing the required disclosures. Interesting. So yeah, 30 days for big companies, 180 days, but it's still the four days once those two timeframes pass by. Wow, that's that's a big move. I mean, this is a power move on behalf of SEC uh, taking these breaches much more seriously and putting the emphasis on the company itself. And I think that that's because a lot of big companies have been breached over the last, let's say, five years, and they kind of tiptoe around those breaches. We've we've had stories here, but we've updated the audience on you know, t- you know three three episodes down where the, we're like, oh yeah, by the way, that breach we mentioned before was much larger than initially disclosed, right? It always is. It's always <laughs> much larger. You know that. Oh, yeah. But, yeah, no, I, it's interesting on how they're going to do it. I think it's going to put a lot of pressure on incident response companies. Sure. Because um, companies that think they've been hacked into or they're showing some evidence, they, you know, mm-hmm. it's it's clicking. It, it's, a, it's a ticking um, clock that, you know, we have to get some answers out there and we have to make a public statement. So... Four days Absolutely. is not a lot to get many answers in a, in a cyber investigation of a large breach. Yeah, but look at it, look at this key point. Companies are also required to describe their processes for assessing, identifying, and managing material risks from cybersecurity threats in their annual reports. So, th- in essence, these rules are going to force companies to look at their security much more seriously, rather than just putting together a security program and then adding a you know. Uh, a, a percentage of their rev- yearly revenue to a budget uh, and then saying, okay, uh, CISO and CIO, you guys figure out the rest. Um, it's going to be much more involved, it seems. Yeah, it sure seems like the SEC is really clamping down on cybersecurity and taking it serious, uh, which is good to see. Yeah, 100%. So oh, one point that I did find interesting is that in some instances, uh, the disclosure timeline may also be postponed if the U.S. Attorney General determines mm. that an immediate disclosure would pose a significant risk to national security or public safety. So that is a very high-ranking official in the U.S. Uh, government. Sure. Um, so, you know, I don't think you're going to see a lot of those. Well, let's think about it like this. Let's, let's, let's apply this. The, let's, let's apply exactly what we just said to the pandemic t- um, the time frame, right? Um, where during the pandemic, there were a couple big breaches. One was um, a pipeline company, right, without mentioning this name. I mean, you could you could consider that a potential national security issue, right? Um, so, at that point, do you think that their attorneys would try to reach out to the to U.S. Attorney General and say, "Hey, look, here's what we have. I'm not sure we we could we could abide by these rules." What do you think? Well, I don't think they're going to reach out directly. I think it's going to become that the why it's the Attorney General is you're going to have to have a, a federal law enforcement agency investigating it. So you're going to have the feds come in, and that's going to go to the head of their office. And then the head of their office is going to call the, their director, the let's know director. And then the director would be the one that would ask the U.S. attorney. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it's, there's a lot of channels it's going through on this one. Oh, yeah. So do you think that this would add more work to the FBI already with the cyber units and, and, and all that? They've used law enforcement as a crutch for a long mm. time. Be like, oh, well, the FBI is investigating, so I can't talk about it. Exactly. I okay. can't disclose it. So that's why I think they put it at such a high level, uh, a high bar to cross. And so a company just can't say, well, we didn't say anything because this local schmuck FBI agent like this guy sitting here uh, told me I couldn't. The SEC says, saying, no, 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 that uh, that's not going to happen. You you need it all the way to the top. Wow. Look at that. So I, there's some teeth in this one. 
Yeah, this is yeah. this is pretty big. I mean, I know this is only our second story, uh, but th- there is some teeth in this the, this thing coming out, and I think there's going to be, you know, there's going to be some major changes to U.S. companies uh, based on this. Do you believe that the reason why the SEC went hard with this right here and they just they added extra teeth and they amplified this a bit um, is because of all of the recent breaches that have been taking place? Do you think that that's part of it? Um, I mean, I think it's hot. I think it's a hot topic. Um, you know, the, you know, when you have a hot topic like this and it's in the news every single day, mm-hmm. um, you know, agencies that, you know, get to the forefront of something, then get more funding for it. I mean, that's sort of how it works. Okay. Uh, I'm not saying that's the case. I think this is, you know, well overdue for the SEC to come in and, and, and do, and do this. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm happy that they're doing it. Um, you know, but you would think other or other agencies in the government would be able to. But thinking about it now, what other agencies could put the 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 you know this much pressure on companies other than the SEC? So so no, this is well placed. Yeah, thinking it through. Um, you know, well placed organization to do it. Um, you know, I don't know how much extra work that's going to put on the SEC. Um, I don't know if they have, you know, if they're going to have like cyber investigators now alongside mm. um, that, that that's regulations being put out there or if it's just a look back. Hey, you didn't do this timely and here's a fine. It'll be interesting how it plays out. Well, based off of this alone, um, and I'm talking to the audience here directly, for those of you that email us about like, hey, I want to get to the cybersecurity industry. I'm not sure what path to take. It almost sounds like instant response might be your path. I mean, judging by this. Um, IR is going, to be, is going to be a big player moving forward. IR is a tough job sometimes, though. It is. Uh, a lot of Friday nights, uh, a lot of weekend work. Uh, a lot of stress. Not talking people out of it, but when you're young, it's a young man's game. If you're young and get into IR, you will learn things so fast. Mm-hmm. So a lot, a lot of lessons uh, you learn really fast and really advance your career. Hector, let's take a quick break and talk about our sponsor, HelloFresh. What is the key to dinnertime success? It's variety. HelloFresh keeps your taste buds on their toes with 40 chef-crafted recipes to select from every week. From family-friendly to fit and wholesome, you'll always find new and exciting recipes to try and love. My family has been using HelloFresh for years. With two working parents and two busy kids, HelloFresh has taken the hassle out of mealtime for my family. I've told you guys this before, but I can't tell you enough how much my family has loved our very first meal from HelloFresh. They were delicious bulgogi meatballs. We just had them again last night. HelloFresh has given us a great variety of excellent recipes. They have become family staples at mealtime. And the sides from HelloFresh, they're fresh and perfectly matched for a terrific balanced meal. As a parent, I have enough back to school shopping and planning to do. I'm letting HelloFresh get the groceries and save me some cash with pre-portioned meals delivered right to my door. So when life gets busy, don't call for delivery. Get HelloFresh. It's 25% cheaper than takeout and less expensive than grocery shopping. Just choose your recipes and receive fresh pre-portioned ingredients so you can get cooking quick. Go to HelloFresh.com slash 50HATF and use code 50HATF for 50% off plus free shipping. Again, for Hacker and the Fed listeners, please go to HelloFresh.com slash 50HATF and use code 
H-A-T-F for 50% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. All right, Hector, our next story is a little geeky. No one's skipping forward. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because it's going to apply to all of us. Um, but the, there's a the messaging layer security, MLS protocol, uh, yeah. that is being uh, proposed. Let's not geek out too much. Okay. Um, Promise. But, uh, yeah. So messaging back and forth. Uh, there's a pretty good protocol that's set out for sharing keys if it's two people. If Hector and I want to share a message back and forth and use a program like Signal, pretty easy for our two devices to set up that key sharing. The problem comes in when there's a group and all three or more up to a thousand people in that group, um, you know, they're not all, all their devices aren't going to be online at the same time. So that key sharing, does it go and sit on a, a server somewhere that then can be compromised and stolen? What happens? How does how does a large group of people uh, with different devices online at different times, how do they share keys? And that's sort of what this new protocol is. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, it's really designed for messaging applications that use end-to-end uh, end security mechanisms. Um, you know, I, I love the concept. I love that we're, we're doing more and more end-to-end -end encryption. I'm a big fan of that for privacy reasons, obviously, um, and for security reasons, for sure. Um, but the reality is, is that as we try to do more and more implementation, we've seen a lot of apps and, and companies fail terribly at dealing with end-to-end -end encryption. Their, their implementation usually has some sort of flaws, um, their, their implementation is proprietary, so you can't really see what it's doing on the back end. Um, you know, big shout out to, to groups like Signal and others that have have been putting a lot of effort and time into making sure that E2E or end-to-end -end is uh, encryption is is a thing that we could utilize. But yes, you're right. On you know, once you start including entire groups of people, that's where it gets a little iffy. And so this RFC, this proposal, by the way, for the audience here, in case you want to read it, it's RFC ninety four twenty. Um, you can definitely check it out on the link in the description. It's a it's a fun read. It, it is a long read. I spent fun read. <laughs> I spent <laughs> or hours, if you're having trouble sleeping, please yeah. please take a read through it. Yeah, yeah, hundred um, percent. I I definitely spent at least an hour just kind of reading through it. Cryptography is not my strong suit, but I've always loved to learn. So it was a really good opportunity to kind of see what are the pitfalls that uh, cryptologists have to deal with when we're trying to create a system like this, right? And so in terms of one of the, you know, one of the, the challenges that Chris here mentioned is that, yes, you know, we need to kind of figure out a way um, to establish a, a key management or key distribution for group chats, okay? Uh, that's very important. I'm not really sure that, you know, aside from this protocol, we've had a good success with that. There has been other protocols that have tried to deal with this, um, and they've done it in a really weird way. For example, um, I don't want to give I don't want to give too much too many too many technical examples because you know we could be here for hours. But there was one that we use in IRC. You remember Chris when uh, when you arrested me? Uh, there was one that we were using where um, we would individually create you know a, a private public key right uh, combination, and then we would share our public keys and then use uh, like a secret. Um, in order for us to kind of read each other's messages. And it, it was kind of wonky. It wasn't the best, but, you know, it, it worked. In reality, though, 
um, for much larger groups, it would not really be useful. Okay. So here's one of the cool things that I like about, you know, and I, and I wrote some notes down, Chris, so you don't mind. The protocol that's that's being uh, kind of proposed here, uh, you know, tries to provide efficient asynchronous group key establishment with forward secrecy, which is really cool, uh, and post compromise security for groups and sizes ranging from two to thousands. Right? Fantastic. Well, this is the this is the nerd section, so don't people don't fast forward. But, but <laughs> Hector loves to put the nerd stuff. There's a lot of people that are interested in this, so yeah, just give them the flavor, Hector, of what they if they want to read this. Yeah, I would say just just read it. Um, take a look at it. Hey, if you want to brainstorm, so shoot us an email. We can talk about it. But definitely read the RFC when you get some chance. When you get a chance. Yeah, I, I was just worried that you say to asynchronous group keying with forward secrecy <laughs> and post uh, uh, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You lost people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, think about it like this, right? So I, I'll give you kind of a, a quick definition of forward secrecy. Sure. Um, it's basically an encryption system and it, that changes keys or rather changes the keys used to encrypt and decrypt information frequently and automatically, right? That's, that's all it really is, at least in concepts. And we've seen, we've seen that being used in multiple products and many cases fail, right? Remember, there's been a lot of bad implementations. It's, in fact, it took a lot of bad implementations for us to get to this proposal. So um, the idea here is that even if you're compromised, the chat technically probably isn't going to be. But that's that's all theoretical, and it all depends on implementation. And I'm sure we'll get to that point at at, at some point in the future. So if the, they're putting this proposal out to to use this, you know, group shared key type or sure. distributed key, what is Signal using for group right now? Is it is it is it bro- breakable? Is it like is it not secure? Because I definitely have group conversations on Signal. Yeah, I have conversations on Signal too. I, I think that they're probably using something similar to what's described in this document, but I can't say for sure. I haven't looked at the code, um, and I, I don't know the specific details on that. But that's a great question. So, yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I you know, I, I know people, you know, love Signal, uh, you know, for messaging in, you know, back and forth with each other. But I didn't know, you know, based on this being proposed out there, if if that meant the group conversations might be a little more insecure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know the document definitely refers to some of the signal technology, right? Um, signal does incorporate some of the items, if not all of the items, that this proposal kind of brings out as the mechanism they want to use for the protocol here, the MLS protocol. Um, so I'm pretty sure that maybe Signal has already included some of this stuff into their um, platform, but can't say for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any of the any of the guys want to geek out? I'll have the uh, description in the in the uh, the article in the description. It talks about the different security as things change. It goes from like exponential to log the log of the group size. It really gets into some some math stuff here. So it is an interesting read. Uh, I'll give you that one, Hector. The next thing is uh, that you sort of have been looking around and you found on the internet something strange. Why don't you tell the audience what you found? Yeah, yeah. So I found uh, I found a very cool um, GitHub repository uh, by means of Hacker News, right? So big shout out to Hacker News and the, post, the folks that posted it. Um, but there was uh, somebody posted a link to a GitHub rep- repository that contains a list of government websites that do not end in .gov or .mail. Okay, um, apparently there's like thousands of websites, government websites that are not within that boundary or with it, or not using that TLD top level domain. There's almost um, 10,000. Yeah. It's almost 10,000 websites. I had no idea. Now I will say there is a large portion that is local. Sure. 
Local like, governments. We're not talking federal. I mean, 6,232 of them are classified as local government. Mm, it's a large number. Yeah. It, it makes you wonder how, how they got to that point, right? Like, is it a situation where, you know, they're just low on resources, man hours, manpower, whatever, um, and they just did not follow up with the .gov application? Because I, I know that there is a process. From, from personal experience, I know there's a process where if you want to get a, a .gov uh, uh, domain, you have to, uh, of course, apply. You have to have, um, you know, essentially somebody with, uh, with authority that's able to handle the phone call and then prove, uh, one, that you guys are legitimate, and two, you know, the, the reason behind the request, behind the application. And then it'll, it'll take some more time for authority to take place and, and, and grant you that .gov domain, Right. So it's a process. It makes me wonder if a lot of these smaller counties and, and you know, you know, uh, agencies uh, just don't have the resources to apply or go through the process. Or maybe they're not aware of the process. It is funny, though. You download the CSV and uh, there's a column called use case. Yeah. Uh, and I just went through some of the, you know, the, I filtered on the use case. And there's one of them is like the, the use case is listed as I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So apparently xsp.org is being run by the Office of Personal Management, who uh, historically have not done so well. I think my information was stolen from them, which I, I'm pretty pissed about. But but yeah, so uh, it's kind of funny. Someone put together a, a, doc, a federal doc, a document for the government. It's like, I don't know. I just don't know. I can't figure <laughs> this one out. So, But it also does look like that the government is, uh, you know, getting up soaking sucking up uh, domains that so they can't be uh people can't be fished uh for example um people know that to apply for a federal job a lot of them are listed on usajobs.gov um it looks like they also uh squatted on usajobs.com which just redirects to usajobs.gov and it looks like there's quite a few other ones that do that too so you know good on them i mean there's you know is we're, we're, we're kind of making fun that there's so many you know websites out there that are off the books or it looks like they're off the books but you know they're also doing things to, to help us too yeah i mean and, and and let's think about the risks here there's a reason why dot gov holds its prominence that there's, there's a couple of things that um a dot gov does for you that a dot com or dot org doesn't especially for for folks that are going to the websites um so a dot gov domain uh, is is automatically um preloaded into the HSTS, which I mentioned earlier in a previous um, uh, two stories ago. And so what that means is that when you connect to a .gov website from your browser, it's automatically going to um, essentially connect to the HTTPS version of that application or the web server, um, which, you know, enforces encryption, right, between the client and the server. When you have a .com or .org, that, that preloading does not happen. It's not a thing. You would have to manually submit your website for preloading, HSTS preloading, to force browsers to to kind of force users to uh, to to check out the H uh, HTTPS website. Okay, so that's something that you don't get if you're a small county and you're not a .gov, right? You don't have a .gov website or domain. Then yeah, you're probably in some cases feeding uh, or communicating back and forth bidirectionally with your clients in plain text, which is uh, problematic. Okay. Um, there's another thing, right? Lack of trust. If you have a website for a small county and you're accepting like county tax payments and, you know, you just moved into the town or you've been there for a minute, you're now, you're becoming more security conscious. You're listening to the podcast here and now you're, you're paranoid. 
are you really going to trust, you know, localcounty.com, right? Um, you know, or would you rather trust localcounty.gov or localcounty.yourstates.gov, right? I would never go to localcounty.com. I would yeah. believe that that's a trick. And then, of course, you have like domain squatting and even confusion or misdirection, right? So in the phishing campaign, when a client calls me and says, hey, Hector, we need you to do like a spear phishing campaign against our employees. We have a feeling that they may not be paying attention to our security awareness training. I'm like, okay, cool. What's your website or what's your domain? Oh, our domain is soandso.com. The attacker in this point, or me, I would create uh, soandso.com without the, you know, without the A and D. Um, and, you know, just that slight modification in domain, I'll copy the same front page. I'll, I'll replicate the login uh, flow. And the victim at that point is going to think that they're logging into a legitimate website when they're not. Uh, it's hard to do that with .gov domains because they're not open for registration. There is a, there's a, it's a, it's a multi-step process to get a .gov domain um, that a .com wouldn't be able to provide you. So Let me ask you the other way. I'm looking sure. through this list right here as you're talking. Yeah. I definitely listen to you. I, I love listening to you. There's a lot of .orgs, which I take as like nonprofit organizations. Yeah. Well, how can there be so many .orgs that are really behind-the-scenes government websites? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's problematic, right? I mean, you have to ask. I mean, I would love to sit down with some of these agencies and ask them, uh, hey, so why did you guys choose the .org? Why didn't you just go with .com, which is probably much more familiar? Um, is your county a nonprofit? Or, or, but you also have to understand that .org doesn't necessarily correlate one-to-one with nonprofit organizations, right? It just, again, it just makes me think. It, like comparing the .govs to the .coms, when I see that, I normally think. Now, I will say there are a large number of the .orgs that, that just redirect. And a lot of it is health and human services, man. It seems like they're really getting behind, like jumping on. When they start a website, they, ju- they get the .coms, .nets, and .orgs just to make sure people don't get confused and go to the wrong one. Yeah. So that's good. Good on them. Yeah, definitely good on them. But I would like to see, you know, at least a a, a big number of these of these organi- of these counties and and uh, agencies moving into the .gov domain space, just because of the, the 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 things that I've mentioned so far. You know, man, it's a lot of domain management out there, man. Oof, yeah, <laughs> you got to keep track. And then this one IT guy quits, and he's the only one that's got access to whatever the TLD for for that .com or Oh my gosh, that's a that's a headache waiting to happen. Oh yeah, well I'm sure they have like a like a maybe like a TLD or rather a domain registra- registration platform or something oh, they can log I'm into. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, says the guy who probably has never worked at a government because yeah. you know it, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I had I, I slowed myself down at the end. I'm like, oh no, uh, they, they probably have to fax in their name servers to the to the <laughs> to the registrar. Let's stay within the, our TLDs, our top-level domains. Those, you uh-huh. know, um, big news in the world of top-level domains this week, Hector. For the yeah. first time, an operator of a, of a top-level domain said, eh, I don't want to do this anymore, and <laughs> voluntarily told ICANN, and ICANN is the organization that runs all the, the domains, um, it, it wants to terminate a contract. First time mm. ever that a top-level domain says, no more for me. Uh, so I guess Desi is, uh, it's for the Desi network. It was set up to attract Indian registrants. Um, yeah. You know, so re- Desi is a term that's used to refer to people of uh, South Asia birth and, and live abroad. Mm-hmm. But apparently this guy just didn't want to do the dot Desi anymore. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's definitely uh, it's it's a unique case. It's a unique story. Uh, I was interested when I when I ran into it, and I, I'm glad that you liked it, right? Because this could have been like a eh, let's let's you know we don't have to talk about this because you know it's just it's just it is what it is. But it's interesting because now there's just also security implications here. Believe it or not, um, this company and the guys behind here are like, well, we don't want to do this anymore. We're kind of moving forward, uh, moving on rather. And ICANN's like, wait, hold on a second. Hold on a second. Slow it down. We can't just cancel these registrations. First of all, people pay for this stuff, right? Uh, and the second thing is, is, well, we don't know who to transfer this to. And we don't feel comfortable transferring it to like a third party, like a GoDaddy or something. Right? Well, at first, ICANN thought they made a mistake. They're like, hey, guys, you accidentally said you don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, so, uh, and let me ask you a question, though. Yeah. You know, we don't know the exact details. We have no like, no idea what these guys were thinking. You know, if you were to guesstimate as to what happened here, like, do you have an idea? Would you have an idea, an opinion, maybe? Well, I mean, the article said that, you know, there was fewer than a thousand domains created. Um, and then beyond that, that the majority of, like, uh, search engine returns came back to, um, I, and I wasn't familiar with this term, adult-related content. I don't know what that is, but... Uh, but but yeah, apparently it was associated with that. Um, so I mean, I would take it these guys just weren't making money. Um, it wasn't worth manning, you know, the the few uh, responses they got, and they or they just said, "I'm sick of it. I'm retiring," and no one else wanted to do it. As usual, I look at these stories with the risks or risk associations, right? Oh, there's a lot of risk with this. Oh yeah. Well, the first thing is well, big shout out to Desi Networks, whoever those guys are. For letting ICANN know, because they could have easily did a you know a, a under the desk deal with some bad actors and said, look, just give us X. You know, we spent two fifty or two hundred fifty thousand at least for the registration alone. Uh, you know, give us give us at least a portion of that back, and you can take over all the domains. Right? Um, you'll have domain hijacking. That'll be a, a major problem. You'll have DNS injections. That'll be another problem. Uh, data privacy risks. Now the bad actor could potentially access the uh, private registrations of all of these different uh, domain owners, whether they're legitimate or they're a random porn site. That's still privacy stuff, uh, a privacy risk that you know you don't want to just have anyone uh, uh, be able to access. A loss of trust. I would say the, the next operator, whether they want to become legitimate or they're just bad actors, um, you know, any Desi domain moving forward is going to be considered bad. Um, and then, of course, spam and scams and, and everything else in between. You know, it's, it's definitely problematic um, from the privacy perspective, from the, the security perspective. Again, I'm glad they went to ICANN. Hopefully ICANN can figure out a solution to this that makes sense. But, yeah, this is, a, this is a, an interesting case. We'll see what happens with it. We'll keep you guys updated on what's going on with yeah. Desi. Hector, network giants unite to fight cyber security risks. So that sounds like the um, the Avengers or something. Uh, yeah, that Marvel <laughs> movie that nobody wants to watch yeah. anymore. So apparently, Cisco, Juniper, Fortinet, uh, Intel, uh, AT and T, Verizon, and a bunch of others got together and they formed da, 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 the Network Resilience oh, Coalition. My God. The NRC. Oh, that sounds evil already. <laughs> it sounds dorky. Can you imagine being part of the Network Resilience Coalition? I, I might, I might submit my uh, my resume. Hold oh, on. maybe, maybe that'd be good. So, ATT, Verizon, and Hector. Yeah, there you go. The group will encourage enterprises to patch systems, 
fix holes and prepare defenses for routers and switches. Um, and their objective is to deliver open and collaborative techniques to help improve security for network hardware and software across the industry with a focus on routers, switches, and firewalls that are older, may have reached end-of-life vendor support, or have been overlooked for security patching or replacing. Awesome. Yeah, it sounds nice. Uh, you know, it sounds like, yeah, it's good. These companies are getting together and thinking about, you know, yeah, a lot of them sell cybersecurity products. A lot True. of them want to encourage you to buy and upgrade new products. Uh, sure. They might be financially motivated to do that. Yeah. Um, I don't know. The cynical side of me is like, eh. Yeah. But, you know, and then the, the, the optimist side of me is saying, well, you know what? It's, it's, I, I, I like the idea that these vendors are getting together and looking at ways or trying to find ways to kind of deal with the problem that we have in this country and other countries around the world, right? Um, it's not just U.S. specific. We all are dealing with this problem, which is, uh, you know, consumers are purchasing items, uh, routers, uh, network equipment. So they set it and forget it, just like the old Ronco commercials. Remember those? Uh, they set it and forget it and move on with their lives. Um, and they're not patching. They're not updating. Some of this stuff does not auto-update um, for the fear of potentially having an impact on network connectivity. And so, you know, what you end up with is hundreds of thousands of outdated, obsolete, insecure, out-of-life or end-of-life systems that are essentially running the uh, a, a portion of the internet, okay? It's insane that it's taken this long for anyone to say, well, is there something we can do about this? Even though the name sounds dorky and there's a lot of big name companies here, and yes, they do sell security products, so maybe they, they might push some of their products, but the reality is that if we have somebody taking a look at the external tax surface of our nation, um, you know, it would be nice if they could kind of figure out, well, what to do with that. Now, here's where I come into conflict, right? So let's say that this coalition, uh, coalition identifies that my home router is currently accessible over the internet, right? It has some sort of admin interface exposed. Um, maybe I haven't updated in a long time, okay? Maybe I, I even have the default password admin admin or whatever, right? What exactly are they going to do? Are they going to block traffic to my router? Or are they going to send me an email? How are they going to send me an email if they don't have uh, uh, the access, right? I don't see a bunch of I, – I see, I see a couple ISPs here, right? Um, but I don't see my ISP in here. So how exactly are they going to reach out to me let me know I need to update my shit? Or how are they going to kind of help me with that? That's where I kind of run into a problem. They don't really tell you in this article. They, they tell you they're going to take the next few months researching and detailing the core problems its members are seeing across the industry. Uh, and then by the year end, they're going to report that. So uh, 2023 doesn't sound too fruitful out of the old, old NRC. So again, cynical me, sorry. But they do put some interesting stats in the article um, coming out from them. So uh, I guess they, they talked to 635 uh, big IT departments within, uh, within big companies. Um, and they over half said that they, uh, that they have more than 100,000 vulnerabilities they're working on, a backlog. That's crazy. And 54% said that they were able to patch fewer than 50% of those vulnerabilities in their backlog. Yes. Um, and then 77% of respondents say it takes longer than 21 minutes to detect, prioritize, and remediate just one vulnerability in a production network. It's a lot of time. You need a lot of people to uh, cover 100,000 vulnerabilities. Well, you know, the good news is, is that we have a ton of 
really smart people in this country and countries abroad, right? Um, that are looking for work. They want to get into the industry. Fine. So if we need to kind of figure out a way to get these folks working and it, maybe part of the job is identifying, um, you know, weak products that are still running uh, and exposing, you know, potential consumers or users to exploitation, maybe as part of uh, some sort of unit within each company that their goal would be to kind of uh, put together a plan or mediation plan, anything. There's, we have the manpower. It's just a matter of, of putting together the structure to put them to, to use, um, which a lot of companies are not really you know, doing, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. I mean, the survey said the, the chief among the reasons for not fixing the problem was the inability to prioritize what needed to be fixed first. That's 40% of them. And then, you know, uh, 43% at lack of effective tools, um, lack of resources, 38%, and then not enough information about risks that would be exploited by the vulnerabilities, 45%. So, yeah, lack of information, lack of, you know, uh, the first one's sort of a hand-holding, um, you know, but, but, you know, all fixable things. So, you know, with more information out there about what exploits are, are, are out there and what vulnerabilities are in systems, hopefully they can kind of sort of prioritize. It's great for me to see this stuff, right? So, I mean, we just, we just covered the SEC, um, you know, uh, requirements. We're covering this. It seems like organiz- big, these big companies are getting together to kind of figure out ways to do vendor collaboration, which I think is a, is a, is a good start. It's a positive step towards addressing uh, cybersecurity risks. Um, especially when you bring it in, the key players that are part of this, right? Um, that are actually selling these vulnerable products. Yeah, let's let's bring them into the conversation. Okay, so how can we resolve this? How are you? What kind of structure or what kind of methodology are you going to implement um, or offer up that's going to help you know you know deal with our security posture problem? Okay, um, I also like the you know I'll be honest with you, right? I love the focus on vulnerable hardware, big big shout out to whoever came up with this i'm glad it's not a situation where they all sat down around in a round table like the camelot's round table and said okay you know we need to target attackers we need to do a hackback we need to do this that and the other no no they're like no let's look at something very simple here you know let's look at ddos how are these ddos operators getting so many hundreds of thousands of infected computers or networks to participate in ddos well it turns out when you look at data sets but like gray noise for example they're seeing that a lot of consumer routing products or network products are part of these botnets, a large number of them, okay? And so, you know, but aside from that, I love the idea that they're also kind of discussing the challenges of patch management. You buy a product, you set the product, you forget about the product, who's going to patch it, right? Who's going to deal with that? And then, you know, there needs to be a conversation around exactly what that is, what that should look like. And I hope that these guys address that. And then, of course, finally... The need for greater visibility, right? Visibility is extremely important here. Encouraging organizations to improve visibility into the networks, you know, at the end of the day, may be able to help, you know, detect or prioritize or re- remediate vulnerabilities. Again, I still run into the problem I have, like how are they going to communicate that with us? But I think these are all positive steps. So big shout out to what they're doing. Three different cybersecurity agencies this week put out a warning about a, a bug that's being exploited by uh, for, for data breaches. The Australian Signals Directorate of Australian Australians Cybersecurity Center, the CISA, which is the U.S.'s Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, 
and the U.S.'s NSA or National Security Agency all put this out. Um, you saw this as interesting because this was a sort of a new move by CISA. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah. Well, when we see alerts from CISA, it usually revolves around a specific vulnerability, right? Um, you know, whether it's like the move it issue right now that we're dealing with, or is uh, a vulnerability in an Adobe Code Fusion or a vulnerability in some sort of vendor product. Um, we're also seeing alerts about specific ransomware operators and their methodology. But no, CISA came out with an alert with these other agencies in Australia, um, alongside Australia, uh, to discuss a problem with a specific attack vector. We've talked about this attack vector before, IDOR vulnerabilities, uh, or insecure direct object reference vulnerabilities. They're one of my favorites whenever I'm doing a web application pen test or API pen test. But essentially, and again, we've talked about this before, gents and ladies, uh, but essentially is when you're able to access a resource that you shouldn't be able to access, and it's, it's very easy to exploit, and I'm going to give you a real-world example. So let's say you go to a website, and you know, you're navigating around the website, and you go to change your password. If you look at your address bar, maybe not these days, but let's, let's, you know, let's go back a couple years. Um, you go to the, the address bar, you take a look at it, and it says you know, www.website.com slash account slash settings dot PHP question mark ID equals one, two, three, four. Right. So you take a look at that and you're wondering what the hell those weird characters are. and what, what does ID equals one, two, three, four mean? Well, it's pretty much saying, hey, we're about to change the account settings for user profile identifier one, two, three, four, which is you. Now, what would happen if you change the 1234 to 1235? Well, if the application is not written well and it has authorization issues or access control issues, then you might be able to change the credentials for someone else's account. So that's what an IDOR vulnerability is. You're accessing someone else's resources, okay? Um, now, for the most part, and I give, I'll give web application developers a bunch of credit because since IDORs were you know, exploited, uh, you know, I would say substantially many years ago, um, you see less and less on that from the front end. But iDoors are still accessible on the back end, especially through API. Uh, you know, an API stands for Application Programming Interface. We've talked about that as well, where an application is probably written in a way that you could automate what the application does by sending requests to specific endpoints now, depending if you have an authorization header which says, hey, I'm authorized and here's my authorization key to make this change or make this request, the application or the endpoint may say, okay, cool, you are authorized, go ahead. Now, imagine a scenario where a programmer has forgotten to add authorization checks to their API endpoints. Theoretically, now you have anonymous access to compromise people's accounts or access information that you shouldn't have. So... Going back to Chris and what you asked me about why this is interesting, um, yeah, it's interesting because uh, this is a very specific vulnerability that CISA and, and the agency in Australia and the NSA are warning folks about. Do you like this move by CISA? Do you, do you think they should be involved in, in this sort of uh, alerting? Yeah, absolutely. I think this was a great move. I think that if they don't you know, kind of go too deep into putting together alerts for each individual uh, attack vector, I think this is fine, right? Um it's definitely prominent. And for any of you out there that are getting into security now, 
or you run an organization where you have a website that uses a lot of heavy API endpoints, uh, this is definitely interesting to you. Yeah, we'll see how CISA goes, uh, you know, with the individual exploits moving forward, but it'll be interesting. So the Norwegian government's IT systems got hacked using a zero-day flaw. So uh, apparently it's put a warning that a, that a platform used by 12 different in the ministries suffered a cyber attack after hack hackers exploited a zero-day vulnerability in third-party software. Um, the hackers might have accessed or exfiltrated sets of data, uh, but not much more information coming out of the government, just that it's some sort of zero day. But I've heard that you might have breaking news. The yeah. new information is coming out while we're recording the podcast. Yes, yes. I want to send you a link. We have an update. Um, okay. So coming out of Norway, there was an update in regards to this story. And I'm going to send you this link in the chat. So you have it there. Added to the description. And so what's interesting here is that the Norwegian government has provided some details and they're putting uh, an emphasis or they're putting out an alert to organizations that may have been using the Avanti software, which is a management software. Um, it seems that some attacker, some adversary somewhere had identified a zero-day vulnerability in that management suite. And... Um, and so, you know, they've been exploiting it. And Norway was one of the victims. In fact, 12 agencies were compromised as a result of, um, or 12 ministries, sorry, uh, were compromised as a result of the zero-day um, exploitation. Um, there's some more details in the article, but essentially, Ivanti has issued a patch on Sunday for the so-called, well, what they call it, the so-called zero-day vulnerability. And uh, and yeah, so it's, it's definitely interesting to see, you know, one, that yet another management type of platform has been compromised or has um, has been found to have zero-day vulnerabilities, which, you know, is expected. Um, but two, the adversaries are targeting these, these large software platforms for the purpose of supply chain-style attacks. You know, you don't need to compromise Norway directly. If you compromise its management software, you're able to compromise, in this case, 12 ministries. You know, it, it's, it's the concept that hackers for a long time had where if you want to focus on a specific target, you don't target it directly. You go around the target, yeah? You want to compromise your networks around it or, or organizations that may be partners to it for the purpose of not raising too many red flags. In the event you're caught attacking a partner, you know, your main target is not going to be or go into red alert. Uh, your, their partner will. So this, this story kind of, for me, kind of sums up a few different things we've talked about today. The, the Norwegian government says, hey, we've been hacked. It's timely notification to its users, but we're not going to tell you what the issue is. And it kind of goes back to the SEC with the attorney general saying, yeah, we should release what's happening here because there's a zero day vulnerability. That means everybody's vulnerable to this right now. Um, and we're not going to talk about it until that patch has been put out. Um, do you agree with like things like this where there's a zero day that there should be a notification, but it's very vague? Or is that pointless? Does it just get lost? Yeah, no, honestly, and uh, honestly, I, I I like it, right? I'd rather okay. there be some sort of notification to get the conversation going, all right? Um, and releasing the details prior to a patch probably would not be a good idea. So yeah, no, I, th I think that, I, I agree. That's a horrible idea. Yeah, so I, I think this was the move. They did it right. I mean, look, at first when I read the story and you and I talked about it, um, it, it always sucks when we get a story. And we're like, yeah, we want to know more details, but they're not giving us any details. We kind of have to wait. Um, but you know what? They did the right thing. They let people know, hey, listen, we're dealing with a major security issue right now. 
And oh, by the way, here's an update three days later. Yeah. So here's what happened. So well, I know I know Merrick Garland is a uh, listener of Hacker in the Fed. Um, he's the U.S. U.S. attorney. So that's what you're prescribing for him for dealing with these SEC notifications. If if there's a zero day, then he should give his authority to not have make a company release that information. No, 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 not see that's that 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 becomes complex, right? It becomes a complex problem because it might depend on um the it might, it might even depend on the company, right? Depending on several factors that are probably way beyond our scope, they may not want to say anything about a breach until um you know they they have more details, right? Or they provided more details to the, to the US Attorney General. Or there's you no know, active investigation. Right. I, I don't I don't want a company to, to, to say, hey, yeah, we got breached uh, 20 minutes ago and they start posting stuff online and, you know, it, it's just going to be chaotic. I, I don't think it's, it's even going to be a, a good way to go about it now. But hold on a second. Right. Let's just continue that train of thought. But if it's a situation where, you know, they need to make a notification, even if it's a general notification, hey, we're dealing with a security problem, very similar to how to the Norwegian government dealt with it. I, think, I mean, I think that's fine. Again, there's probably so many variables that we're not even thinking about right now that it's hard to, to kind of come up with a good answer. I like what the Norwegian government did here, and I, I think that I'll, I'll be okay with that. I, I agree. I, I think they do. They did it right, and then they put out the information when they should have. Um, but, yeah, it's a hard call sometimes. Yeah, and I think it would be a case-by-case scenario, right? I mean, there probably is going to be a whole bunch of case-by-case scenarios. You know, I'm looking forward to see what like, the first breach notifications are looking like, okay? Um Remember, going back to the SEC article or the story and their guidelines, uh, yeah, so a breach happens and a company has four days to report that breach upstream. Okay. Um, then what, right? So what's, what's the process after that? I'm assuming the law enforcement will be involved in the investigation. Is the response will be taking place? Um, then at some point, is the SEC going to release a, a report on exactly what happened? Or is that going to fall upon the company to do that? I think this sort of thing is going to force more companies to get law enforcement involved. If they know that they have to publicly put it out there within four days, they're not going to say, eh, we haven't even called the FBI yet. That's a pretty bad release or the Secret Service or HSI or one of them, you know. Um, And then the other thing is within that four days, if you see large amounts of people selling and then the SEC can see, you know, stocks moving and selling. Is you know is that going to tip them off for insider trading? If if someone's selling a bunch of stuff, a, a breach happens, then with before the fourth day happens, people are selling, selling, selling. I certainly would start investigating some people that way. Yeah, no, you know what? <laughs> I, yeah, this is gonna be a, this is gonna be an iffy one. It's gonna be very iffy here because yeah, you're right. If if there's an internal notification that a breach has occurred, theoretically, you could just almost immediately sell. If you work at the company, there's different rules around it. But yeah, you mean telling your brother-in-law or whoever, you know, that's it's going to be sketchy. So there's going to be some sketchiness because when those first reports come out of a breach and that are mandated, when like we don't have any answers, we don't know what's going on, it's going to affect stock prices. Oh yeah, four hundred percent. So especially the first few ones, you know, there's going to be some reaction to it. Well, looking forward to see how that uh, plays out. So. Last article, Hector. You sent me over. Um, satellites are rife with basic security flaws. 
uh, and it's from a prominent uh, cybersecurity or you know technology uh, publication. I'm not going to say it on here, but people, we keep put the links in the description, so take a look. Um, so the, the, it goes on and says uh, that they found that they're years behind, satellites are years behind normal cybersecurity standards, uh, hundreds of miles above Earth, thousands of satellites are orbiting the planet to keep the world running smoothly. Um, yada, you know, yada, 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 uh, the, the, you know, again, satellites are rife with basic s- security flaws. Sure. They tested three satellites. <laughs> they tested three satellites and found out that th- these satellites that are all hanging over our heads are about to fall on our heads. Like this to me is one of those headline grabbing cybersecurity, uh, headlines that yeah. is just bullshit. I think it's bullshit. Uh, you can't tell me, you know, that you, we're not talking about DOD satellites. We're not talking about, you know, foreign government satellites. We, they, they looked at three satellites and said, man, satellites are screwed. <laughs> well, look, when you look at it from a security perspective, I mean, I, I, I completely agree with, with where you're coming from. I think that this article, um, you know, may be a, a bit on the FUD, right? The fear, uncertainty and doubt, but, but. Uh, some of this makes sense. I mean, think about it. There's a bunch of satellites flying over us that have been deployed um, for five plus years. So that would imply that they're vulnerable to vulnerabilities that have been released since then, right? But you, you also have to remember one thing, ladies and gents, that you know some of these satellites are one-way communicators. Maybe some of the satellites have bi-directional communication, right? You may be able to authenticate and access the satellite and run instructions. But we're talking about, in some cases... You know, especially for the older satellites, uh, X amount of characters at a time. Depending on the exploit, depending on the vulnerability, the attacker would need to then first compromise the operator down here um, on Earth, get access to the network, and then find a way or figure out how to access the satellite to authenticate and then to access this terminal. Um, and then they need to publish or they need to then exploit whatever vulnerability they're trying to target. Um, and then what? What exactly is next? Um, is the goal to crash the satellite to make it fall out of orbit, or is it to take control of the satellite for whatever nefarious reasons? The reality is that, yes, I'm pretty sure the satellites are vulnerable up there, but exploitation and controlling them is a completely different story. Let's wrap it up, Hector. Uh, All right, let's wrap it up. Everybody's going to read the articles. So, uh, listeners, if you want to ask us a question, please reach out to us at questions at hackerinthefed.com. A uh, lot of great questions this week, Hector. We didn't get to any because there were so many articles, um, but some really good questions in there. A lot of good feedback from the audience. Um, you know, uh, so we'll, we'll hit that again. Questions at hackerinthefed.com. Uh, merchandise. Uh, go to hackerinthefed.com to get your Hacker in the Fed merchandise. We've got hoodies, T-shirts, and custom orders. Um, we offer international shipping. Again, it's hackerinthefed.com. Uh, lots of good merchandise. I, my uh, the, the lady that runs all my merchandise was uh, working her fingers to the bone this week, uh, Hector. So the audience really, really... Uh, that's awesome. Jumped on there. I'm super excited about walking around New York or walking around somewhere and seeing someone wearing a Hacker in the Fed shirt. You know, I'm definitely going to ask to take a picture with you if you if I see that. So so go out there, guys. Uh, good feedback from the people that's already gotten their their hoodies and T-shirts. No um, way. Yeah. The lady out in uh, Eliza out in San Francisco, she sent me a very nice email the other night um about how the quality of the hoodie and how much she loved it so really really happy to hear that sort of feedback so big shout out to liza she was the i 
think she was the she was the first to order, and so her her shipment got there first. Um, and she got it within a couple of days. I was very pleased with the the turnaround on everything. I accidentally called her Lisa in an email I sent to her, and so I apologize again. It's Liza, um, great listener and loves the show. So really, really big shout out to Liza. That is so dope. You have no idea how happy that makes me, man. And I, I'm very appreciative of the support of of the audience and the folks that are listening and sending in questions, especially. You know, we have to do questions uh, episode soon. So we did a lot of questions recently. We've done really, we, yeah. Last episode, last episode we did three, and then before that we did four or five. So we we get a lot of questions. So I, again, we love them. Yeah. So absolutely. I I hope you look out in the audience this week when you're doing your event and see some hacker hacker in the Fed shirts in the audience. Oh, that'd be so dope. I I would definitely take a picture with the person that's there. Hundred percent. So I'll take a picture anyways, <laughs> but still. But you'll be asking for the picture. So for sure. <laughs> New episodes every Thursday. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Hector, uh, fat episode, little dorky in the middle there, but we we brought had some great stuff for the audience. So guys, really appreciate the feedback. Really appreciate you reaching out to us. Uh, really appreciate you buying the merch and, and supporting our sponsors too. You know that that really does help the show. So Hector, enjoy yourself, enjoy your trip, and travel safe. I look forward to talking to you again. All right, thank you, my friend. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.